0: Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal himself to us in his word. Thanks for stopping by. What great truth for us to declare this morning. Um, Like I said before, my name is Jeremy I may not look like Jeremy. I love it. I thank you. Thank you. Uh, th- this has been long in the planning for today, um, and and I love hearing the, the uh, reactions when I dress up. Like, like, uh, like my son. He he walks in. He hadn't seen me yet this morning. He just goes, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> It was quality. It was quality. I've been asked three times whether or not we're having a funeral today. (laughs) I assure you, God willing, we are not. Um, uh, No one's asked me to perform a wedding ceremony yet, so (laughs) just kidding. We have processes in place like premarriage counseling before I do that. But um, it is great to be with you. It is great to be gathered together this morning on a soon-to-be snowy day, perhaps, uh, in West Michigan. We're going to open up our Bibles to the book of James. So I invite you to turn to the, to the, the New Testament book of James, kind of towards the end, uh, near, near the end of the book. We're going to be studying this morning favoritism. And what I love about James, and one of the things we've learned about James is that James is an incredibly practical book for our lives. James uh, is not, he's concerned about having right doctrine, and he's concerned about having right creeds, but he's a person who is very, even more concerned about how those creeds and how those truths get lived out in our lives. And one of the reasons we gather here is to study the scripture. And what I hope and what I pray happens is that when you go home each week and when you open your Bible throughout the week, that these words would not just be words of knowledge to you, but that they would be words of instruction. Uh, the word Torah comes uh, usually refers to the first five books of the Bible, but it's a word that means Teaching teaching, instruction. We come to receive teaching and instruction because James assumes rightly that how we are taught is then how we should live. And one of the reasons we are studying James is because James does not hold a punch. Um, he, he addresses a lot of things, including what we're gonna study today, fav- favoritism. For James, faithful obedience flows from being God's servant, and in being God's servant comes out of a life that abides in Christ. It comes out of that daily walk with with Jesus wherever you are at in your walk right now. God meets you there, but he also has a word for you. He has a word for you today for how you are to follow and to live after him. And so we are going to, um, we're gonna begin by saying the Shema together. And uh, I invite you to stand with me and then we'll read our passage. Let's say this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The words of James chapter 2. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, hear, Shema, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored the poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are the words of the Lord. Let us pray together. God, we pause now. We've heard your word read. And God, we ask that you would speak. That you would speak by your Holy Spirit to show us what it means to live this out. God, we thank you that we've come to a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who is rich in mercy because, God, we need mercy today. Lord, in these moments, teach us what it means to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So this morning, I said we're talking about favoritism, but here's kind of your big idea. God's holiness is made evident when we love our neighbor as ourself. James picks up on this idea of favoritism. I read it to you. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Philip's translation says this: "Don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ." What is favoritism? What is snobbery? Yours, yours might say. Uh, oh, there's another word. Uh, um, partiality, that's it. I knew it began with a P. I just couldn't remember which one it was. Yeah, so you've got partiality, favoritism, snobbery. What is this? Let's begin by defining what this actually is. It it comes from a word which means to accept the face of. That's what it literally means, to accept the face of. Uh, It could also be translated to receive someone according to their face. And you're like, what is that? Simply put, it means this, favoritism, snobbery, uh, partiality means to make a judgment regarding someone based upon their outward appearance. It's to look at their face and make a judgment just based upon what you see. Now, we do this all the time, right? Like, we do this all the time. And sometimes it, it goes to, down the path of being wrong, and sometimes we just make value judgments. For example, um, If you saw someone with thick pants, a jacket, a red or yellow helmet, an oxygen mask, an axe, you might think it is a, yeah, maybe a fireman. And if you saw him walking in with all that kind of stuff and his axe, you would probably try to make your way to the nearest exit, right? Yeah, so you make certain judgments. Um, If you saw someone in tailored pants, a coat, a press shirt, a tie, you might think they are a, <laughs> Pastor, okay. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Don't let this fool you. <laughs> Things are not what they appear. Or maybe a businessman. We'll go with that one. <laughs> Pastor, businessman, you'd you, you think it's someone who's maybe going to an important meeting, right? Um, if you saw someone with tattered coat, holy pants, mismatched clothes, dirty face, long, unkept hair, you might think someone is homeless, right? you begin to make judgments. Uh, you see someone uh, in a white coat. What would you think? Doctor. Yeah, I was, I was in the hospital this weekend visiting someone, and the doctor walked in, and she was wearing a white coat. Sure, sure enough, she's a doctor. Um, if you see someone, um, we, we make judgments all over. You might see someone who has some sort of special needs. They might be in a wheelchair. And so you, you're trying to determine, what can I make sense of all this? You might see someone who is on one side of the age spectrum, all right? They're 70, 80, 90. You begin to make a judgment. You might see someone on the other side of that spectrum, small. (laughs) You might begin to say, hmm, I wonder what I know about this person. We make value judgments all the time. Now, these initial judgments, what do they actually tell us? Not much of anything. They might give you someone's age, they might give you someone's status, they might give you what someone does for a living, but on the other hand, all of that information may be false. You might think I'm a businessman. I'm not. <laughs> you might think I'm a pastor. Maybe. <laughs> I am. But, um, <laughs> but in our culture, we make judgments quickly by sight. The, uh, on the, the increase of social media only kind of uh, accelerates this. Um, social media, Facebook, Twitter, all this kind of stuff ha- have increased our preoccupation with a certain self-image. Let me ask you this. If you have one of those accounts, think about what your profile picture is. Okay, got it in your mind? Now ask yourself, how many takes did it take for me to get that photo? Was it one? Was it five? Did I, was I wearing a certain kind of shirt? Did I have a certain kind of background? What would your profile picture look like if you took a photo of yourself on an average day doing what you normally do? See, we care about image. We care about image. We're not the only ones that care about image. Status was incredibly... Um, common in the first century. Uh, You have Jew and Gentile. You could tell the difference who they were. You have slave and free. You could tell the difference who they were. You have male and female, of course. Uh, You have rich and you have poor, where our text takes us today. James says in the first verse of chapter 2, my brothers don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. It is inconsistent with living for Christ. And he pulls in an example. He says, for example, in chapter 2, or sorry, verse 2. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. So he has painted a picture for his audience, a very stark picture um, this picture it describes a meeting. Now, the word there for meeting is the word synagogue, the synagogue in Greek. Uh, and so, this this meeting could have had two possible um, settings. Either one, it's a gathering of the church for worship. That's one possibility. The other possibility scholars talk about is is it could be a judicial setting. In First Corinthians, Paul. Encourages the community at Corinth to settle grievances within the church. And one of the places that they would do this is in the synagogue. All right, James is writing to largely Jewish people because this is one of the early books. So, so they're used to these words. And synagogues, um, sometimes they're standalone synagogue buildings. And other times there are synagogues that meet in the home. Here's, here's a picture of a synagogue that meets in a home. This is an ancient home synagogue. And so if you were a very wealthy person, Um, You might open up your home uh, for more than just, you know, having someone over for dinner. You might have the gathering of the church there, and you might also have some judicial proceedings that go on. And so, you know, you've got a kitchen and bathroom, you've got a slave room, but but you have different areas here where you could have um, a gathering for prayer, you could have a gathering for worship, or you could have a gathering for judicial proceedings, And James is painting this picture of you have a rich man and you have a poor man. And when James paints this picture, it's a very uh, poignant picture for the first century context. He describes the characters, a man with gold ring and fine clothes. This is great wealth. All right? The the clothing is luxurious. It's the finest cashmere whatever fine clothes are. It's gold on the rings. You know this person has status. You know this person has wealth. And there's a poor man in dirty clothes. And the word used here for poor describes the severest form of poverty. right? It's the severest form of poverty. One scholar says, this person may may, may well own only one set of clothing, and these clothes are disgustingly unclean. So James is putting together this picture. For example, you have someone the highest of high status, and you have someone the lowest of low status, and he says, brothers, don't show favoritism. How would you show favoritism? Well, James says, uh, if you look with favor on the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, sit here. Sit here in this nice place. I've I've reserved the place of honor just for you. But you say to the poor man, sit over here. Maybe on the floor by my feet. He says, haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? Haven't you preferred someone over someone else? Image happens all the time in our society, and it happened all the time back then. But oftentimes, the image really distracts us from what is at the core of who we are. For example, what was your morning like today? Before you came here, a couple of you wearing a nice suit, maybe, Um, what was your morning like does the presence of a coat and a tie tell you anything about me? Maybe, maybe not. At the court, doesn't tell you anything about what's going on in here. It just tells you that I don't wear this very often. <laughs> Favoritism partiality, when it's at play in our lives it prefers someone over someone else, and it does so oftentimes for prideful or for selfish reasons. What will benefit us? How will we advance in life? Who can best help us move up the ladder of work, ability, or social status? If, if we prefer someone, we might be saying, if I associate with this person, what will I receive because of it? it, if, um, it if I'm preferring someone, I might be asking myself a question like, how might my life be better if I show more honor to this person than to that one? What will so-and-so think if I associate with the poor? What will someone think if I associate with the rich? James says, brothers, you have, say, you come into a meeting at the synagogue, and there's a poor man and there's a rich man, and you say to the poor man, here, place of honor. Poor man over there. You've become judges with evil thoughts. Don't do it. Now, James is not eliminating distinctions, okay? When the poor man and the rich man walk into the synagogue, they're still poor and they're rich. When they walk out, they're likely still poor and rich. What he's saying is don't show favoritism. Don't look with your eyes on the outside and make value judgments about people based upon what you see. And he goes on to talk about this. He he says, listen, dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored the poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? He's lifting up the poor. And he's saying, by the way, you, you want to honor the rich? Isn't it the rich who take you to court? Isn't it the rich who come down on you with various things? Scripture constantly addresses the poor. Years ago, I, I remember reading through the Bible in a period of time, and I endeavored to make a mark in, in that Bible. Every time that scripture talked about God's favorable interaction with the poor and the oppressed. And it's all over. It's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It goes all the way through um, the Psalms and all the way into the New Testament. God is a God who cares about the poor and the oppressed, and He meets them there. It, in the first century, it was common to find the rich oppressing the poor. It's kind of like the character uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' Christmas Carol. You, you know that character, right? He, he's someone who uh, who wants every last penny. You don't even get out early for, for Christmas Eve. He, he goes and he gets every last dime that is owed to him because it's all about what he can get. Every penny matters, not the person, not the story, just the money. James is essentially saying, why do you favor the rich for what they can do for you? They blaspheme my name, yet you want to show them favoritism because you think that they might accomplish something on your behalf in your life. There's a story in the in the scripture about the rich young ruler. I believe it's in Mark 10, and uh, the rich young ruler. Describes a, a man who, who's setting out on a journey and he comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, they have a quick conversation and Jesus says, You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. This rich young ruler says, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Here's a man who had everything. You look at it from the outside and you'd be like, he's, he's got it made. And he goes, he goes to Jesus. He says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus cares a, a lot about how faith is lived out. And he knows that even though he has done all these things, he hasn't murdered, he hasn't committed adultery, he hasn't stolen, borne false witness, defrauded, he's honored his father and mother. He's like the the, the perfect poster boy on, from the outside, uh, from looking on the outside. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, you lack one thing, go to so everything you have, give to the poor. And it says this, he, w- he was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And the problem wasn't the possession, it was that the possession's, Had a hold upon him. He was fine to do all the other commandments, but when it came down to loving God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength, he wasn't all in. He wasn't. He he wanted to hold everything, he wanted to hold that control for himself. James isn't denouncing poverty, and he's not denouncing rich. He's saying, don't discriminate based upon what you see on the outside. Moreover, the story of the rich young ruler is, you may think you have everything, but you have nothing, because you want to hold on to all your stuff. On the other hand, you might be poor, and you still may not have anything, but you can also have everything when you're poor because of Jesus James goes on, verse 8. He says, Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker, James is Jewish, all right? He, he's he, he's well-steeped in the scripture. And he's pulling on a scripture here in Leviticus 19.18. So if you take a moment, just go back to Leviticus 19. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. And Leviticus 19 is a very famous passage. And it's famous for what comes in verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I want to show you what comes before that. Um, James is picking up on the love your neighbor as yourself, but I want you to understand this in context because I, I think James is, is taking that and his hearers are, are thinking, okay, there's a whole logical progression of what it means to love my neighbor as myself. Um, Leviticus 19 is a very practical section of the Torah. Uh, in verse one, in verse one sets a context for us. The Lord spoke to Moses Leviticus 19 verse 1. Speak to the entire Israelite assembly and tell them, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Everything that follows comes from this. God wants his people to know that he is holy and therefore they are to be holy as well. And being holy means to be set apart. It means that the life that they would live would look differently. And he's going to give them commands that are going to by them living it out, will show that their life is different than the community around them. So look with me really quickly. Uh, uh, That's verse one and verse two. In verse three, he talks about the importance of respecting your mother and your father and for keeping my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. In verse four, he essentially says, don't worship idols. Don't make these cast images. I am Yahweh your God. Verse five and six and seven and eight, he's talking about I want you to offer sacrifices properly. Here is how you should do that, because this is holy to the Lord. Verse 9 talks about when you reap the harvest of the land, you're, you're not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings. So when they would harvest, they would leave the corners of their field. And how much of the corner you left often was a mark of how generous you were. The more corner you left for the poor and the oppressed and the, and the exile and the sojourner in your, in your land, that, that demonstrated the heart of God. It demonstrated the holiness of God because it was a way to give to someone who did not have anything. Uh, verse 11 talks about don't steal, don't act deceptively, be honest in all of your dealings. Verse 12 says don't swear falsely. Verse 13 says don't oppress your neighbor, all right? Pay him his wages, don't hang on to them. Verse 14 says don't curse the disabled, you know? Don't put a stumbling block. You're to fear your God. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. Verse 15 and I think this is where James is picking up on, on the first part of what we've been studying. You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Judge your neighbor fairly. Now, he's, he's not saying prefer the poor. Neither is he saying prefer the rich. Because sometimes in judicial courts, one is right and the other's wrong. Or one's right and the other's wrong. He's saying, be fair in how you work and how you judge. In all things, what matters is truth, not status. All right, J- James, I believe, is picking up on that in chapter 2. Um, verse 16, he says, essentially, do not slander. All right? Don't jeopardize your neighbor's life. Verse 17, don't harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly. That's interesting, you know. Don't harbor hatred. Go right to your brother. Deal with it with your brother instead of with a third party. It kind of sounds like some Matthew 18 coming in there. Um, verse, Verse 18 then says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus is asked the greatest command. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On all things of the law hang these two commandments. These are guiding principles because when doing that, that is how you declare and you, and you, you live out God's holiness on this earth. When, when people look at this kind of action, they say, wow, you serve a different God. You are set apart in a different way than the people around me. Moses is not speaking in theory. Like James, he is demonstrating very practical ways in which to demonstrate God's holiness in real life. And James correlates favoritism to sin. And, and while there are greater and lesser, lesser sins, it, and what I mean by that is this, stealing a candy bar is different than stepping out on your spouse. <laughs> Those are two different things. One is heavier, one is lighter. But both are sins it's been described this way. Assume that there's a ship anchored at port, and the anchor has 613 links in it. All right? The, 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 The Hebrew Bible is known to have 613 commandments. If you take one of those chinks out, no matter how small that chink is, if a breeze comes in, that boat will float out to sea. It breaks the link. Every sin matters to God, even though there's heavier and lighter sins. Every sin separates us from God. And favoritism, partiality is one of those sins. It's one of those sins. And for James, it comes down to this very important principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to love? And what does it mean that I have a neighbor all right? In Leviticus 19, 18, you have to you have to structure it that way. If you were to do a more in-depth study of Leviticus 19, you would find that your neighbor is anyone that God places in your path. All right? It's your, it's your physical neighbor. It's also your family members. It's also people you know at church. Anyone who God places in your path is your neighbor. Jesus tells the story of uh, the Samaritan. There's two guys going down, or a guy going down the road to Jericho, a notoriously treacherous road. He's beaten up. A priest goes by. A Levite goes by. Another person goes by. And none of them stop to help him. But a Samaritan, someone who is hated by the Jews, goes by, stops. He bandages him. He takes him, puts him up in an inn, makes sure he's well cared for. And Jesus responds He says, Who is the neighbor? And the guy can't even say Samaritan. The the guy who's trying to trap Jesus says, the one who showed favor to him. Actions matter. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anyone whom God has placed in my path. Today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. What then does it mean to love? We'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But I want to suggest to you, love is an action, not an emotion. And I know I say that as we get to enter February 14 week. (laughs) You're about to be inundated if you haven't already been by Valentines and candy and roses and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Everyone's going to try and sell you everything, uh, the bigger, better chocolate set and all this kind of stuff. To love is to decide, to act on someone's behalf for their betterment without expecting anything in return. James, Go back to James if you're not there already. Um, James says, Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin. You're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit murder or adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. And friends, we're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. Every one of us has broken God's commands. Romans says it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But here's what James says next. He says, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, speak and act. Keep speaking, keep acting as those who are judged by a different kind of law. And we've already studied that law a little bit last week with Pastor Tom in chapter one, verse 25. The law of freedom does not give us a license to sin. The law of freedom is turning to Jesus in repentance, saying, God, I have sinned. God, I have broken your heart. And God, I need mercy. The law of freedom is that which becomes evident in our lives as we go to God with our sin, and he takes it, and he pays for it, and he reconciles us. He makes us right again with God in relationship. And he gives us his spirit to live a new kind of life. Not a life for our own sake, a life for his sake. In Matthew 18, there's a story uh, about a servant. And the the servant uh, owed his master a great deal of money. You know, it was was a stupid lot of money. and he goes to his master, who had asked for payment, and, and he says, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have it. I don't have it. And uh, he begs mercy from his master. He, he doesn't have this inordinate sum of money. And so the master says, I pardon. I, 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 I pardon what you owe me. You are now free and clear. I'm trying to get the actual, yeah. He says, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. And that was 10,000 talents, which is, like I said, just a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but the slave went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, which is nothing. It's It's change. It's change in your wallet, but... But the man didn't have it, and he grabbed him, choking him, and he said, "'Pay what you owe.' At this, his fellow slave fell down, began begging him, "'Be patient with me. I will pay you back.' But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and he threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened." The master, the headmaster, he he summons him and he says to him, you wicked slave, I forgave all that debt because you had begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? James says, speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You you know someone who has experienced mercy. And the reason you know them is because they give mercy. Let me ask you a question. Have you received mercy from God this morning? Then God says, give mercy. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful. That's not giving up. That's saying I've received a lot, and I want to give because God has given to me. So what do we do with all this? We've got a couple different themes going on here. I'll just kind of tie it together for you. What do we do with all this? Well, a couple of implications. The first one is this. We must always remember that God is holy. God is holy, and he calls us to be holy but not only does he call us to be holy, he actually gives us the means by which we can be holy. Because you and I cannot make ourselves holy. Only God can do that. And he does that through forgiving our sin. And he only, we, we only experience the forgiveness of sin when we come to him in our brokenness and we say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I ask you this morning, have you done that? And if you haven't, you can pray that right now. And I invite you to pray that right now. And you can be reconciled to God through Jesus. Remember that God is holy. Truth is determined by God, not by our outward appearance. We are not called to condone sin, but we are called to repent and to seek forgiveness and to bring reconciliation wherever we are. Says it this way in the Bible, in a different context and scenario, but but says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. As God looks at your heart this morning, what does He see? Does He see a forgiven heart, or does He see a heart still trapped in sin? Remember that God is holy. God alone can deal with our sin. Number two, love must lead. Here's what I mean by that. Talked a little bit, a couple minutes ago, about how love is action. Love is something that's lived out. Well, love is something that must be led. You know, in First Corinthians, the famous love passage that we preach at weddings and stuff like that, it says, you know, if I could speak a, a thousand tongues of angels, and if I have this and I have this and I have this, but I don't have love, I'm a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I make a lot of noise, but I don't actually do a lot of good. And then it talks about what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth. Love never fails. And this isn't just a wedding passage, all right? This is a passage for us today. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians says, is first love. We can only love with that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love because God has demonstrated his love towards us and we have his spirit living in us by faith and, and we are being equipped to love that kind of way. And you might be in a relationship right now, a marriage or a dating relationship. You might, you might be in a family situation. You might be in a school or a work situation where you're faced with people who are just difficult to love sometimes. All right. I know this because I am difficult to love sometimes, and yet my wife loves me anyway. So what do we do when we, when we struggle to love? Well, we go to God for love. We can only ever go to God for love. But then God has showed us what love is. Patient, kind, not envy, doesn't boast. And I would dare say that if we gave that perspective of love in our life, and we were intentional about saying, God, how do you want me to live this out today? God will show you. (laughs) Your patience will be tested, and you'll go back to God and say, God, I need patience today. I need to learn how to live out love. God, I need kindness today with this situation. God, I need grace, because this person is really difficult to love. But what I mean by saying love must lead is that we must be proactive in loving. Sometimes we're reactive, you know? Well, I'll love if they love me. No, love must be proactive and loving. Love recognizes that each person, regardless of rich or poor or any other things, they're made in God's image. Love realizes that God has been merciful to us, therefore we must show mercy. Love separates actions from people, all right? This is a huge one. Because I, I don't care who you are, where you're at, there's going to be at some point in time where you're going to have to choose to love someone even though you did not like what they did. And maybe what they did was wrong. Love separates actions from people. While difficult, by God's grace, it is possible to genuinely love someone and not approve of their actions, but to still demonstrate love. Acting on their behalf with their best in mind, which is truthful, which is honest, which is everything. As Pastor Tom said last week, love seeks to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So so what do you do when you're faced with a moment like that? You pray, right? God, this is a difficult situation. God, I need your help, and God will give it. As you yield your desires And you ask God for his, God will give them to you. Number three, so remember God is holy. Love must lead. Uh, Number three, um, the church is the one place where every person should be valued. The church, and I don't mean the building, I mean the people. The church is the one place where every person should be valued, regardless of their background, regardless of where they've come from. Now That does not mean that even in the church you don't deal with sin. Of course you deal with sin, and the scripture talks about how to do that. But it means that every person has infinite value in God's sight. The church is um, sometimes known for divisions and for cliques. <laughs> what we should be known for is unconditional love that calls one another into greater holiness by God's grace age, gender, culture, wealth, none of these things define a person's worth. What defines a person's worth is Christ. The church should be the one place where each person should be valued. And the more this is practiced within the church, guess what, people take notice of that. Because one of the things that many people are looking for is value. And they find it all sorts of ways. They find it in relationships. They find it in academics. They find it in uh, drugs. They find it in alcohol. They find it in all sorts of ways. They they, they find it in being um, the best that they can possibly be and getting the gold star at school or the promotion at work. But those don't define value. What defines value is what has God said about you—that you're loved that Christ died for you. The church should be the one place where each person is valued. And finally, um, this can only be done with a daily relationship abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Um, I, I went to go visit Donna Malone yesterday, who's in the hospital, and um, she she wasn't doing well when I saw her. She just had a uh, a line put into her neck to stabilize her blood pressure, and and it, it, she was in a little bit of pain and discomfort. And um, I was in her room for her room her her room in ER for five minutes or less before she asked, "How's Shirley Weiner doing?" Here she is on a hospital bed herself. She is so concerned about someone else. And it struck me, that's what it means, in part, to let love lead. That's what it means to care for others with a deep, passionate love that drives what you do. Because when you're faced, even in the really dark situations of life, you say how can i love the people around me i found out more about her yesterday you know like she volunteers at her retirement center and and she's always looking out for others and and i was personally challenged because i don't do that in that same way james says my brothers don't show favoritism and the flip side of don't show favoritism is love your neighbor as yourself I don't know who God is going to place in your path this week, but I do know one thing. God has called you to love them. God has called you to love them. I want to challenge you and encourage you. Don't live out of your flesh this week. Don't say, I'm just going to be better. We're going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to give you space to say, God, I know who I think you're calling me to love. Or or God, maybe I don't know who you're calling me to love, but I know that you're going to ask me to love someone in a difficult way. And I want to embrace that in a way that matters most for the glory of God and for the declaring of his holiness in this world. Would you bow your heads with me? And would you just take a moment yourself to pray right now? Father, some of us walk in this morning and we have a fractured relationship with a spouse or with, with, with a kid, with someone at work. God, you know who it is in our life. And yet you've called us not towards favoritism or partiality. You've called us, Lord, to, um, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And even as we think about ways in which we love ourselves, um, ensuring that our basic needs are met, um, caring caring for different things in our life, God, I, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to see what it means to love our neighbor this week. God, I pray that any any sin in our life, particularly the sin of Partiality or favoritism would be shown to us right now. And God, we ask your forgiveness for how we prefer some over others. God, we don't want to do that. And God, we yield our desires, our plans, our dreams for the ones that you desire for us to have. Lord, I pray for, for us as a congregation as we enter into our week. We go out into this world. We have the opportunity to be salt and to be light, to, to, to shine forth the holiness of God in the midst of a world that is really filled with a lot of division and a lot of anger. Help us to help us to listen to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger. God, thank you uh, for teaching us your way. Help us to rely upon your faithfulness. God, give us an undivided heart to live for you this week by the power of Christ in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, If the Lord is doing something in your life, you want to dialogue about that, talk about that, uh, we would love to be able to sit with you at some point in time today or this week and just kind of help you uh, unpack things that God is doing in your life. If there's any way we can serve you, please let us know. Uh, It is our pleasure to do so. Would you stand with me? Brothers and sisters, as you go this week, may you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. May you seek by the grace of God to love your neighbor as yourself. May God show you what it means to do that in accordance with his teaching and for the glory of his name. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.